Well, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Jeremiah, and I'm really glad to be here with you all. And before we get going, there is an important birthday to celebrate. And I've been thinking all week about what song we could all sing that we all know to commemorate a birthday. And I feel like I found it, and I think you know it too. So one, two, three. Happy birthday, dear. Right? <laughs> yeah, I saw a few people like, he never, he never told us whose birthday it was. How, this is one of those few songs where if you don't have one word in the song, you just can't finish it. You just can't finish it. Today, we celebrate the birth of the church. Pentecost Sunday is a celebration of the birth of the gathered and sent people of God. There is no cake. I'm sorry if that was teasing you as a result. But we did get to sing the song, half of it, and we are going to take a look at a very, very important celebration within the life and with the faith that we have in Jesus. Pentecost Sunday is what you've arrived into, a very important part of our story, and we get to celebrate today. This day is almost, almost as big of a deal as Easter. Like if Easter is like the Super Bowl, then this is like overtime in the Super Bowl. <laughs> kind of, I guess, if you're football, if that connects, sorry. But just know that Pentecost Sunday is a really, really big deal. And we get to celebrate that. And it's the arrival of the Holy Spirit the arrival of the Holy Spirit onto us as people here on earth. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come. He said he'll come and he'll lead you into all truth. He will advocate for you. He will comfort you. And Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as a person, not just a thing. So it's important for us to begin with that this morning, that oftentimes um, we as Christians, we think of the Holy Spirit, or maybe you picture it like I have in the past, like just this smoky vapor, just light, electricity kind of thing. That's not the case. According to Jesus, the Holy Spirit is a person, is a person. In fact, the Holy Spirit, it's his power and, and, and the person of who he is that, that drives the church out into the world. And that's what we're commemorating this morning. He, he sends us out into the world. Are you ready? Yeah. We're going to take a look at Acts chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, or if you have a device with the Bible app, go ahead and launch that, or you can take a look at the screens this morning, and we are going to take a look at the power and the person that enables us to go public with this message, this hope of Jesus. Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read the first 14 verses, and we're going to read another passage, we're going to have some fun on the whiteboard, and here we go. When the day of Pentecost came, okay, let's stop right there. And don't worry, we are going to get going faster. It's not like we're not going to stop every seven words, okay? When the day of Pentecost came, so Pentecost was a holiday, which was a festival in the life of the Jewish people way back when. And it was a celebration of when the law was given to Israel. And if you remember that old movie with Charlton Heston and he climbed the movie, yes, a few of you remember, those younger than like 30 have no idea what I'm talking about. But many of us are like, oh, I remember it comes on Thanksgiving Day, and then it went into color, and it changed my, yeah? Okay. So Moses goes up to the mountain. That's important. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and receives the law. Comes down, you know, the commandments, the beard, the robe, everything, right? 
So it's a celebration of God giving the law to his people. So every year, Jews would celebrate that this happened, that the law was given. That's also very important. The law was given after Moses ascended up to the mountain. I'm leaving a lot of Easter eggs on the way to the final part of our message. You'll see. It'll be cool. Okay. All right. So here we go. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This is men and women all together in what's referred to oftentimes as the upper room. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, you know that there was also a really, really famous supper that took place in an upper room. Scholars don't really agree on if that was the actual same upper room. Nonetheless, they were gathered together in one place where something powerful was about to happen. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. I imagine the author of this book, which is Luke. Luke also wrote the gospel according to Luke. Good, good. That was an easy one. They're going to get tougher, okay? Gospel according to Luke. He wrote both Luke and Acts. And I am betting that Luke had in mind, or the Holy Spirit had in mind as he was led to write this, suddenly a sound like the the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. There's also another wind that came and created something powerful. That's in Genesis 1-2. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. There was chaos, there was darkness, there was void, there was nothing, but God was there in the midst of it. He hovered right over it. And oftentimes, wind or spirit is kind of synonymous, especially in Greek. And so we find that this rushing wind came through, and Luke is using a lot of metaphors throughout this. So even um, Luke, who was a physician at this day and age, a very learned and trained man, is having even a difficult time trying to describe what's happening. So a lot of things in Scripture are to read literal, and that's helpful. But there are some things where we see that it's, they're trying to describe it. Revelation is a lot like this. It was like this. It was like that. It was like this. And when you're trying to describe something that is so unimaginable, so miraculous, so beyond our comprehension, sometimes we struggle to give it language to, to tell what's happening. So there's a violent wind that comes through, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And just like in Genesis where something was created, we'll find that something else here is created again. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. This is reminiscent of John the Baptist, but there's one that's coming that will baptize you with fire. With fire. Throughout Scripture, oftentimes fire is the metaphor for the presence of God. On the altar where things are burned, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, don't forget him, you know, there in the, in the fiery furnace, right? Fire throughout all the scripture, Old and New Testament. Saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of the men and women there. All of them, men and women, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So now the, sh- the, the camera shifts. we got a scene change here. Luke goes from writing what happens inside the room, like here, all gathered in one place, to now what's happening outside the room. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem. There were some Jews from every nation under heaven. And here's the reason why. Pentecost, as I said, was, was just about like the Super Bowl for the Jewish people. And what I mean by that is a lot of people get together and eat a lot of food. Okay. And I don't care who wins. Let's just get together and hang out, right? 
Okay, but the reason why this is important is because we find scholars estimate about 2 million people gathered from around the known area to go and celebrate Pentecost from all over the place. And so all these people are around and they hear what's going on inside this room. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, strong language. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? For example, all of us are, you know, generally most of us are from the same area, but every single one of us is speaking a foreign language, so much so that the people outside could hear their own language being spoken. What's happening here? So you have people that are going, what is happening here inside that room? How can this be? Because they're all from the same area. Let's get back. So then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Let me get a sip of water before this part, because this is going to take a little bit extra. <laughs> Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, my favorite, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and those that converted to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. When the Holy Spirit fills us, he fills us to say the things about the wonders of God. And the wonders of God are being proclaimed so much so that everyone and every nation around could hear what was being said. Amazed, there's that word again, amazed, but also perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and gave the only rational explanation, they've had too much wine. It was nine in the morning, so that's cause for alarm when this is happening, okay? They couldn't quite understand what happened. It's very similar to the world when they can look at maybe some of the ways that we try and orient our lives. That's quite strange that you would sacrifice for other people. Why would you do that? And sometimes maybe the only explanation is to give it something illogical. But there's a risen Savior that we worship. The tomb is, still has vacancy. It's something that we hold on to, this hope uh, that he's returning. And we place our lives, when we place that at the center of our lives, this gives us a posture to live for the other, to live as Christ lived. And for some outside of this, it doesn't make sense. It's confusing, it's perplexing, but it does make an impact. Verse 14, then Peter, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and address the crowd. Okay, this verse is important, and it's this verse falls into the category of what one of my old seminary professors called Biblish. Biblish is a combo of Bible and gibberish. Biblish. This is not to disrespect the sacred text, but this is to say, for those of us that have been inside these rooms or other buildings with steeples on them for much of our lives, we get to hear some of these verses, some of these stories, and it's just like static. It's just like, I've seen this rerun before. It's just on in the background. But maybe we don't really, haven't paid attention in the past for really what this meant. For example, we're like, okay, yeah, then Peter gave a sermon. Big deal because Peter goes on, does some great things. But let's hear this as we, as, as we might try for the first time. Okay? Peter is the one that gets up and addresses, which could have been thousands of people. 
Remember, there was about estimated 2 million people that came to Jerusalem during Pentecost. There are crowds of people gathering outside the room, and Peter's the one that stands up and addresses half the crowds with them and half the crowds not. What happened maybe like six weeks ago with Peter? Where do we find Peter? The last time we saw Peter, what was he doing? What happened to him? This is where you participate now. He denies Jesus. He can't even speak for himself. Now filled with boldness, he's about to address the crowd to tell the wonders of God. Just weeks before, he was unable to speak to strangers in the middle of the night. He couldn't say, this is what Jesus has done, this is what Jesus will do. And now, with the arrival of the Holy Spirit, filled with boldness and power, he's able to address the entire crowd. Now, we see Peter a little bit in Acts 1, because he's the one that says, like, hey, we got to replace Judas, we got to find someone, but it's just this little snapshot. But then for the majority of the chapter... It's Peter's sermon, and it's quite the sermon. There's 3,000 people that were saved that day. 3,000 people. That's a lot of coffee given out to people, <laughs> right? Imagine that problem, eh? That's a lot, right? 3,000 people said, I believe he's risen. I believe he's coming again. I believe that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, and I want to follow him. 3,000 people said that. And then the people of God, the people of the way, began to spread like wildfire. We also find, real quick, to take a look at what the Holy Spirit does. In the same way in Genesis 2, he breathes life into, the, into dust and creates humankind. In Genesis 2, the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit breathes, breath or spirit is often synonymous, breathes into the dust and creates humankind. Now we found here, also breathes life into Peter. The Spirit of God breathes life into Peter, and now he's filled with boldness and displaces all of our fears. So as I said, Christianity began to spread like wildfire. In fact, some historians, um, Rodney Stark was one of them, who studied Christianity in its, in its infancy, said that at the time, in 100 AD, so about 50 years after this story, there was about 25,000 Christians 25,000 Christians in 100 AD, okay? 200 years later, does anyone want to take a guess how many Christians there were? 200 years later. We go from 25,000 to how many? This is those questions where someone wants to answer, but they're like, well, I don't want to be wrong, so I'll just kind of mumble it. Right? Anybody take a guess? Anybody? Two million. Five million. Let's combine those, 25 million, or 20 million. 20 million, 20 million. And I respect the cynics and the skeptics in the room. I'm with you because I'm like, well, let's really take a look at those stats. And you might say, well, that's because Rome probably really grew, and so then it's just the percentage stayed the same. No, Rome went from like 40 million people total to 60 million people total. So Rome grew only by 50%. But the people of the way grew by math, much more than that. Much more than that, right? We went from 25,000 to 20 million. This is what happens when the Spirit of God descends upon his people, and it begins to catch fire. The tongues of fire that separated and put onto each one of them then begins to light the whole place up. 
that he is risen, he's coming again, that, that he is Lord, not Caesar, begins to really catch on. And it's like some people call it, it's like the word of God, that the people of God, it's been sneezed and this virus just spreads. Sorry if that's gross. Okay? All right. But oftentimes what stands in the way, what stands in the way of God's ways and, and God's purposes for our lives or for the intentions for the world that he so loves the biggest enemy to that is our own selves. Is our own selves. In fact, one of the biggest obstacles in our journey of faith is that we want to make a name for ourselves. This isn't something that's, you know, from New Testament times or from Old Testament times. Um, this is since the beginning of time. And it still exists today, this desire for us to want to make a name for ourselves. And we're going to take a look at a story where that happens and talk about how Acts 2 and this story in Genesis chapter 11, how those parallel. So if you have a Bible or an app, switch over to Genesis 11. We're going to take a look at um, a few verses in Genesis chapter 11 as we continue on here on Pentecost Sunday. <laughs> it's a nod to the Super Bowl commercials. Okay, here we go. Genesis 11, we're going to read the first nine verses. Words are going to be on the screen again. Here we go. Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And so they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and let's bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. I'm going to repeat that part. So that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building which is kind of funny if you think about it, because they said, we're going to make a skyscraper, we're going to make a building that reaches all the way up to the heavens, and then God still has to come down to come and see them. Like, it wasn't actually that tall at all. He still has to come down from heaven. The Lord said, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. I'm going to address that real quick. Let us. So we have a plural being used. Let us. I don't pretend to know this um, through in and throughout, but we find throughout Scripture that he has a triune nature, a three-in-oneness to him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons in one nature. And for today, we're talking about the arrival of the Holy Spirit here on earth. Again, not just a thing or an entity or a vapor mist, smoke kind of thing, but a person. And so we find even in Genesis chapter 11 that he's saying, not I'm going to go down, but let us go down. So a plural of the one who's speaking, let us go down. And theologians are still writing and writing and writing and arguing over what this three-in-one actually means. Some of the arguments are pretty good, and they're helpful. Some, not so much. <laughs> Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. 
So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. It's repeated again. Another point of irony, they didn't get that tower built. They didn't really do too well building that city, but we're still talking about them. So they made a name for themselves. That did happen, but not in the way they wanted it to happen. Also, we find in here, as we're going to really examine this particular story, is that sometimes, maybe you've walked through this, maybe you're walking through it right now, sometimes God undoes what we've done for our own good. Sometimes he reverses, he topples the buildings maybe that we have created, thinking they were good, thinking they were healthy, thinking they had pure intentions, or maybe not thinking too much at all. Sometimes, for our own good, God undoes those things. And as any good father would, he would say, I know how this is going to end, and I want to rescue you from that. So we see in this story, as they tried to to huddle together, which we'll talk about um, just a few chapters before, Yahweh, the creator God, God tells them, be fruitful and multiply and increase and scatter across the earth. And what did they say? Ah, we have have better plans in mind. We're all going to band together, and we're going to build a city, we're going to build a tower, and we're going to make a name for who? For ourselves, for us. Because we get to thinking still in today, this day and age that if we can all maybe band together and do what we can keep control of, then we can find security. Let me know if you get there. Because it's a, it's a treadmill that never ends. How much is enough for us to feel okay, right? So God says to scatter, they say, no, we're going to get together. And what's also we find is that we want to make a name for ourselves. Like we want even after we're gone for our names to live on, which is kind of a hint towards immortality. Like we want to live even when we're not alive, which is a little bit kind of like we want to be like God, which is a rerun from Genesis 3. Did he really say that you're going to die if you eat this? He's only afraid that you're going to be like him if you do it. And this lie comes in again, like we... We, we can become like him. If we depend on ourselves, if, if we come together, then we can make a name for ourselves. Now, let's take a look. Let's contrast these two stories. And I will say that oftentimes I see Scripture as seven-layer nachos. <laughs> Stay with me here, okay? There's several layers to it, Right? I keep, hold the sour cream. I don't want any sour cream, and I don't want any olives. But everything else is delicious, right? So you got the chips at the very bottom. You got guacamole. What else you got? Cheese, beans, salsa, tomatoes, meat. Yes, the meat. Yes, thank you. Or, or not. That's okay. If you don't want to have meat, that's okay too. Um, so there's several different layers, right? And sometimes we've seen maybe the first two or three layers, or we maybe see the bottom three layers. We're going to take a look at one particular layer in this story that some theologians say, here's something to take a look at. It's illuminated when you put these two stories together. Because we're going we're to do a mashup of these two stories and find out what God is trying to say to us. Okay, here we go. So we got Babel, and this is Genesis 11. 
How'd I do? Is that 50-50? I heard someone laugh, so probably not. Okay, so then we have Pentecost. So I'm going to need your help. I'll start things out. In Genesis chapter 11, the world had one... one, Oh, nice. Very helpful. One language. Uh, what What did they have in Acts 2? Many languages. Many languages. Yes. Many languages. We're going to find out maybe what Luke was up to when he wrote this. Okay, next we have, they were in an open field there in Shinar, which if you are wandering through the wilderness, trying to keep safe, an open field is actually quite dangerous. Because enemies can come at you from, from any direction, right? Usually what's safe is up, help me out, up on a mountain or up where you can see kind of enemies coming in, right? So an open field is actually quite dangerous. So it does make a little bit of sense why they want to like, hey, we got to do something about this, right? So they're in an open field, these people in this particular story. How about in Acts 2? Where are they at? Upper room, upper room. So they're, they're gathered people. In both stories, the people are gathered. In both stories, the people are sent out or scattered. In both stories, the people are gathered. In both stories, God's the one that does the scattering and does the sending. In both stories, they're gathered, they're sent out, but for different purposes and for different consequences and what happened. Okay? Next, we're going to go with they're there and they want to do something. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower. Let's do this. And what, what um, if you remember from Luke... What does Jesus say to do in order for the Holy Spirit to arrive? He says to wait. He says to wait, which, man, that's our favorite thing to do, right? Oh. Think about that stoplight that gets you every single time. And it's like, why is this taking seven and a half minutes? Everybody else gets to go. They've gone twice. Like, you've done that, right? Waiting is very, very difficult. Waiting in traffic, waiting. I don't want to get anybody too riled up, but waiting is tough. Waiting is tough. So we find that God says to wait. It's in these waiting moments that the time isn't wasted. Maybe God is up to something. In our culture, the message is don't just stand there, do something. You got to get busy, you got to get preoccupied. Which, as a therapist, I can tell you, is oftentimes a way to avoid what you're feeling. I'm just going to slip, slip that in there real quick. Don't just stand there, do something, but maybe the message of the kingdom is don't just do something, stand there. Wait. Be still and know that I am God. It's in those waiting moments, it's in those times of silence, which for many of us can be uncomfortable. Like if I stop talking for 30 seconds, some of you get really worried. Like, oh, it's about to happen. It's hard to do in our culture. This isn't any kind of blame on anyone. This is hard to do. We're in a culture where things move so fast and so quick, and there's expectations, whether it be on ourselves or from others. And sometimes maybe the ethic of the kingdom is to taste and see, to be still and know, just to be, not always to do. Okay? So they're to wait. Next we find... um, I'm just going to give you this first one because it's not that much fun to play the game, guess what Jeremiah is thinking. So 
I'll just kind of help you out and say, we have an upward movement that wants to happen with Genesis 11. They, they want to, you know, head, like ascend, kind of go up, right, to make a name for themselves. What happens with the Holy Spirit? What kind of movement is that? Downward movement, that's correct, a downward movement, a downward movement. They want to head up and ascend and make a name for themselves that we find that the movement here in Acts 2 and Pentecost is this downward movement of God. And this is repeated all throughout Scripture, this God coming down to us. He comes down to us and he's born into a manger, right? This is God coming down from heaven. We find, let's go Genesis, uh, Joseph, cool coat, right? Prison. And then down in the dungeon, right? Him. God comes down, 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 down to rescue him and to pull him out. Jonah. Remember Jonah? I ain't going there. I'm going to go over here. Then a big fish. We see the fish is like punishment or discipline. The fish, fish is actually a symbol of grace. The fish is actually a symbol of rescue. Because if we don't get that whale, fish, excuse me, swallowing Jonah, then all of Nineveh doesn't repent. So God heads down, down, down into the waters where he's at to rescue. He comes down. He goes from the mountain is where they're up, the transfiguration, Peter, Paul, uh, I mean, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus is there, and Peter's like, we got to stay here. This is going to be awesome. And Jesus there is like, no, we got we to gotta head down. We got to go to the cross. And then resurrection happens. What happens in resurrection? Up. And Pentecost, down. Movement throughout Scripture, up and down, up and down. The shape of God's love is right here like this. He comes down to rescue us out of our pain. He does not wait for us to get our lives right to come and rescue us. He comes down in the midst of the mess. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He comes down to us. But oftentimes in our lives, we are about getting to the top. That is a sad arrow, and I'm sorry. Okay? We are about getting to the top. And the trouble is, there's only room for one up here. That's a kingdom of scarcity. In this downward movement, in this pursuit to, so that there is crucifixion, resurrection, this is a movement of humility, a movement of sacrifice. This is how God's love comes for us. So it's this downward movement. Pentecost comes down from heaven. The same way God comes down from heaven to rescue the people of Babel. To say, I know where this is headed, you guys. I know where this is headed. This is not going to be good. And if this happens now, I can see how this plays out. I'm going to go down to be with them to help them, because I love them, for their own good, for their own good. So the Lord scatters in both, as I said. So both are scattered, but they have different motivations. Oh, when God comes down, they stop building the city, right? What happens when the Holy Spirit comes down in Acts 2? What happens then? There we go. This is when the church... Starts to build the church. And real quick, this is more than just semantics. This is God that does this, not us, not leaders with microphones up here. This is God that builds the church. It's God that does that. So he stopped building. God starts building over here this way. 
Last one, we'll go with this. And there's a, there's a long list of these things. Secure, apart from God. Hey, we want to we wanna do things on our own, make a name for ourselves. We find that it ends in complete chaos. Any time in my life that I've tra- tried to grab severe control of a situation, it's usually ended very poorly. And the hard part for us is letting go and saying, God, you got to do this. You got to come down and fix this mess. This is a request of Jesus. May your kingdom come, which is a way to say, God, fix this mess. And it's that kind of prayer that God delights in answering. Come down and fix this. So we want to be secure apart from God, and we find that they're filled. Filled with God. It's getting sadder and sadder as we go down. (laughs) Okay? So we find that in Acts 2, it is a complete reversal of the Tower of Babel. We want to make a tower, it ends very poorly. Make a name for ourselves, we find that God comes down to us to begin this restoration of all things because you and I are a part of the church. And let's talk about the church's birthday. I don't just mean here Emmaus that's like 14 years old. I mean the church around the world for the men and women around the world that place Jesus at the center of their lives. And we are the vehicle for God's mission. It's us. Look around the room real quick and just lock eyes with somebody. Don't be creepy about it, okay? (laughs) And just look, we are the church. This is God's plan A. (laughs) You know, this is us. We are the vehicle for redemption of all things. And the church, a lot of times here in the West, we hear this language that he wants to be your, your personal Lord and Savior, which is kind of true, but it's not in Scripture at all. He came to save the entire world. In all of creation, for God so loved the world, and he has chosen us to be a vehicle for that mission of restoration, of reconciliation, of healing into the world. He's chosen us. So we'll we'll finish with this particular passage. It's in Romans 12. Eugene Peterson, um, the late Eugene Peterson, um, translated here in the message, Real quick, if you haven't read Romans, Romans 1 through 11 is like a lot of this, a lot of stuff on a whiteboard, a lot of theology, a lot of concepts, a lot of things are like, oh man, the Bible scholars are still trying to learn. And Romans 12, it begins, okay, here's how to do all this. Here's what this looks like in your day-to-day life, okay? That's how Romans 12 begins. And this is the first idea that's presented before we get to all the how-tos for all the theology, And it translates like this for for Eugene Peterson. It's important that you not misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, God brings it all to you. For those of us in the room that have pure intentions, it may be, I want to build a tower, but I want to show God that I love him. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. His love for you isn't dependent on your effort. 
and on the projects that you have going for him. His love for you is dependent on what he has already done. So it's not what we can do for him, it's what God has, has already done. What he's already done for us. So I'll send you out with a choose-your-own-adventures. There's two options here for your, for your invitation. Two options. Two options. The first one is this. Has the reality of God shown through my life to others as truth that can be seen, heard, tasted, touched, and smelled? All five senses. We find all of those, evidence of all those in the Pentecost story. The tongues of fire would be kind of the tasting part. The tongue there was taste. But is that evident in our lives as we commemorate Pentecost and remember our story. And lastly, has my heart and life been moved into the world by the reality of God's love for my neighbors? Remember, we are the gathered people of God, but we're also the sent people of God. And the people that we're sent to probably live right next to you. They work right next to you. They're in your lives on a semi-daily basis. Has your heart and life been moved out into the world as the men and women here? Remember, 25,000 to 20 million. Without PowerPoint and microphones and tall Mexicans preaching, you know what I mean? I did it all without that. May we do the same thing too. Let's pray. Let's pray, God. We belong to you, and we're so thankful that you come down, that you make the first step in restoring all things, that you come down to us. We thank you for the, the promise that you kept by sending the Holy Spirit, and today, Pentecost Sunday, we remember that you have filled us as believers, that God delights to dwell inside of us as your temple. Would you help us to realize who we are and what you've given us the invitation to do here in the world, to put the world back together again, one small step at a time, one day at a time, one life at a time. So thank you for this morning and for my friends in this room. I ask your blessing as we are sent out. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.